Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Congressman John Katko. He represents New York's 24th District, which will change to the 22nd District in January. Congressman Katko has served four terms in Congress and last year decided to retire. The seat will now be occupied by Republican Brandon Williams. Congressman Katko was regularly rated by independent organizations as one of the most bipartisan members of Congress and also one of the most productive. He first appeared on the Campbell Conversations in 2014 during his first run for office and has been on many times since then. Congressman Katko, I have to say it's, it's bittersweet to have you back on the program. Well, I'm glad to be here. It is a little bittersweet. I just finished my last uh, Homeland Committee hearing today, and that was been the heart and soul of what I've done in Congress. And it was certainly bittersweet finishing that up. And I feel the same way about this, my friend. Uh, well, thank you for that. And let me just say before we start, uh, a couple things. I, I think your interview back in 2014 might have been the first extended broadcast interview for you as a congressional candidate. I think we might have been we might have been one of the first, as I recall. Uh, most definitely were, for sure. And uh, the other thing I want to say and to our listeners is I, I want to say a brief word or two about this exit interview and specifically what I do not plan to ask you about and why, because I think some of our listeners might wonder about that. I'm not going to ask you about the midterm elections. I'm not going to ask you about your successor in the office. And I'm not going to ask you about former President Trump, because I want to instead to focus on your time in office and to get your reflections about that and about the country's future more generally. If you want to comment on those things, you can, but that's not where I'm going with my questions. So, so let me just start first. Over the years, uh, you've obviously talked to thousands of people who had ideas that you should do certain things while in office, and I'm sure you've gotten volumes and volumes of advice coming from all quarters. I, I wanted to ask you this. What's the most important thing about Congress and about being a member of Congress that people don't really understand or don't fully appreciate? I think uh, nowadays, I think the thing that people uh, don't fully appreciate about Congress is that you represent the entire district, not just one segment of the district, right? You don't represent far-right Republicans. You don't just represent far-left Democrats. You don't represent people in the middle. You represent everybody. And you have to take that into consideration. And if you understand that you don't represent, that I can't, I don't represent just your interests, then you've got to expect that sometimes you've got, I'm going to do things that you're going to disagree with. And that's something that we've lost along the way. And, and the intolerance for anything other than your point of view is something that's a pervasive problem across American spectrum. Have, has it been your experience just even in the time you've been in Congress on that point that you raised that, that that there are a number of members and also just people in the political system more generally where you ha- you have to be you have to be with them on everything. It, it's it's you know being with them on seven out of ten things is almost as bad in their view as not being with them at all. It's like this: you're all in or nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I I was flip it back on people when I talk to people from these groups that are intolerant they're like yeah you did this 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 and this and I'd love but you know you did this one thing over here that I don't know so therefore you're a scoundrel and I always respond by saying two things I go everybody in the audience raise your hand if you've ever been in a personal relationship everybody raises their hand then I say if you uh, raise your hand if you've been in a business deal of any sort a lot of people raise their hands like, well, now raise your hands if you got every single thing you wanted out of a personal relationship, everything you wanted out of a business deal, and not a single person raises their hand. And then I say, 
Why do that expect it out of your politicians? And they have no answer to that. Mm. And that's some of the thing that's kind of maddening these days. But you know what? You got to keep beating the drum. And I was one of the more, well, I was over the last four terms rated the most bipartisan member in all of Congress. And I'm very proud of that because that means I took into consideration everyone's interests and acted in the in 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 way I thought I should. So in a similar vein, uh, you've been part of the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress. So just tell our listeners a bit about that caucus and what you think some of its recent successes have been. I, my understanding is they've been instrumental in a couple of the couple of the big pieces of legislation. Yeah, I can walk you through one in a moment, but I, I can tell you the Problem Solvers Caucus is the only caucus in all of Congress that is uh, bipartisan, uh, bipartisan by its very definition. If you're a Republican and you want to join, you have to ask and go find a Democrat to join with you and vice versa. So there's always an absolutely even balance. It's written in our bylaws. And um, so naturally, you, you tend to gravitate towards things where there's some give and pull, give and take. And uh, I give the best example of all. And I think one of the greatest successes for the Problem Solvers Caucus was the infrastructure bill. Uh, back in 2017, when I was a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus, they asked me to chair the, the, the committee, the subcommittee, if you will, on infrastructure. And I had a, a Democrat with me who's no longer in Congress. And we authored a very detailed report that came after spending hundreds of hours with our staffs and our uh, various stakeholders about what an infrastructure bill should look like. And we provided a very detailed outline, very well received. And then it kind of meandered because of the change in leadership and what have you, and there's never been an appetite to get it done. Fast forward to 2021, they asked us to freshen it up a bit. We freshened it up, the Problem Solvers Caucus, myself and Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania. We then went to uh, what I thought was a seminal moment. We went to Annapolis, Maryland, to Governor Hogan's house, uh, residence with a number of governors there, a number of senators, and a number of members of Congress. And Connor and I presented our, uh, our package to them. And I know the senators liked it because they took the idea and called it their own. <laughs> which is the ultimate compliment from the Senate. Right, right. And that was formed the basis for the infrastructure bill that came out of the Senate. And so then it came to the House. It got subject to some political tug and pull, but we still had a very bipartisan bill and, it, and it, it's now law. And that's something they haven't been able to get done for a long time. And I think that was one of the greatest successes that we had in Congress as a problem solvers. And I'm very proud to be part of that. So thinking of your office specifically now uh, and your work specifically, is the bipartisanship rating the, the accomplishment that you're most proud of, or is there something else that you're most proud of in your time of service? I'm most proud of that because that bipartisanship rating, because of being the most bipartisan member in all of Congress, because that means that this place didn't steal my soul. Mm. And I think a lot of members that go to Congress um, with good intentions or not end up voting to save their jobs and end up compromising their values in the process instead of doing what they think is right, no matter the consequences. And Lord knows I've taken some votes that are very consequential that could have cost me my job, but I didn't care because it was the right thing to do. And so therefore, it didn't steal my soul. And that's reflective of the fact that I'm a very high ranked member, bipartisan member of Congress. And I'm very proud of that because that's what I said I was going to go to Congress to do, to show that you can do that. And I think America right now more than ever is screaming for bipartisanship. They're sick and tired of all the bickering on both sides. We had a very divisive president before. And disappointingly so, Biden has been very partisan himself. And that is um, uh, emblematic. I think the biggest angst America has right now is 
the lack of bipartisanship. I'm Grant Reher. You're listening to The Campbell Conversations, and my guest is Congressman John Katko, who represents New York's 24th Congressional District. So thinking about specific laws or one specific thing that the federal government has done since you've been in office, what are you most proud of there? Would that be the infrastructure bill or is there something else specifically? I think in terms the of infrastructure bill is up near the top. Uh, there's, uh, there's an awful lot because there's an awful lot of things that get done here that people don't realize. Uh, a lot of the budgets that were done were very good. Uh, I think the CHIPS Act is one of those very, mm. very important things for central New York. I can't think of a more consequential bill than that bill in the history of New York State. Uh, the CHIPS Act, for those who may not know, is a response to the concern about the lack of American production for high-end chip manufacturing. Computer chips are in everything from our vacuum cleaners to our toothbrushes, to our telephones, to our cars, to our missile systems. Everything you can imagine has these chips. And the high-end chips, which go into a lot of these sophisticated devices, uh, 90% of them are made in Taiwan. And if China decides to go to Taiwan tomorrow, the world is in a world of hurt. It's going to, the economy will grind to a halt. So it was incumbent upon us from a national security standpoint to incentivize chip manufacturing back home. So we passed this Chip Manufacturing Act, and I was a very strong supporter of that. And um, it was $52 million in incentives for, for, for companies to come back home, especially tax incentives, um, which is great. Uh, there are the commitment to investment already, and that bill's only passed a few months ago, well in excess of $300 billion by private sector. Uh, in Syracuse alone, they're going to invest in commitment to invest over $100 billion. You're talking about the Micron here. The, the Micron. micron. Yeah. So what that means to Central New York long-term is stunning. But what it means to America nationwide because of all the investment in, in chip manufacturing that's already been committed in Ohio and Texas and elsewhere is that we are bringing chip manufacturing back home and we're going to make ourselves much more safe from uh, anything that China might do going forward. And I think to me, that's one of the very big things we've been able to accomplish along with infrastructure and many others. So I'm going to shift gears a bit. What are you going to miss most about the place come 2023 when you're not there anymore? Um, I miss the, I'll miss my staff, which has been fantastic, both in a Homeland Security standpoint and in my, uh, um, uh, and in my, my personal office. But, you know, I, I, I will miss being able to get things done for my for the individuals. And I'll miss being able to show that by, uh, you know, having some guts and some grit and some gravel in your gut, you can, uh, you can get things done around here. And I'm very proud of that. And I've had a lot, a lot of things I've done from an economic standpoint, infrastructure standpoint, mental health care and addressing the opioid epidemic and public safety and homeland security. I very much miss all of that, but uh, you know, uh, I'm a firm believer that it's better to leave a little too early as opposed to a little too late. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm a firm believer in term limits and I self-imposed my term limits and uh I don't have any regrets whatsoever. What will you miss the least about the place? A lot of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. We won't let's ask just, you the name. Let's that. No names. <laughs> okay. um, where do you think in your career there and your service there, you left something on the table that something you know something got left unfinished that that you would have liked to have seen through if you'd have had more time? Oh, I mean, if I got back next term, I'd be head of Homeland Security Committee, most likely. And obviously, we could we could do more to try and uh, expose the, the terrible state of the border um, and, and accountability overall, but also steering us towards uh, a safer country. And I think we've done a, made a tremendous amount of strides, especially with 
uh, aviation safety because I was head of that subcommittee and uh, cybersecurity. So I, you know, there's always more you can do in that regard. So I'm, I'm just not being able to do that. But I also mm-hmm. have great confidence in my colleagues coming up that they'll be able to carry the laboring or in that regard. And if you had the luxury of a do-over on something in the past eight years, what would it be and, and what would you do differently? I'd, uh, at the beginning, at least, I'd worry a little bit less about what people think, because uh, mm. I now I don't. <laughs> but back then I did, I spent a lot of energy worrying about things. And then I realized that, you know what, uh, you what Bill seems like in consequ- uh, seems very consequential and politically cataclysmic to you today, two weeks from now, people forgot about it. <laughs> so you may get belted around for a few days, but after that, they move on to something else and they kind of forget about it. And I'm glad I learned that. And I wish I would not let it affect me as much early on, but I learned. So it's okay. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on mm-hmm. WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Congressman John Katko. He represents New York's 24th District, and he'll be stepping down from that post in January. Uh, so what was your most difficult decision in your time in office? And, and, and walk us through how you made that decision and why. Um, I would have to say, uh, you know, obviously the impeachment vote was not difficult from a logic standpoint, but it was difficult because I knew what was going to happen because of my vote. And okay. um, as much as I knew what was going to happen, um, it was worse than I imagined, but that's okay. And, but I, I, I knew that was going to happen. So thinking about taking a vote like that, knowing the right thing to do based on what the facts were, what the allegations were, and applying the allegations to the facts, just like I've always done as a prosecutor. Um, that was easy. And I knew that I was going to be able to do that. And I approached that vote just like any others. But actually casting that vote, knowing what it's going to do for my family and the wrath I am going to incur because of it and my staff, that was hard, but it was also something that you know you had to do. And even my wife to this day says, I don't regret for a second what you did because it was the right thing to do, despite the fact that it had very, very serious uh, security implications for my family and I for a long time. Mm. I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that, but I'm sure our listeners would like to hear the impact it had in that regard. Well, I had 24-7 security in my home for a month after that and uh, tight security after that for up until today. Wow. It was a very serious thing, but um, toughest decisions are sometimes the best decisions. And uh, looking back on it, I think people are starting to come around with the fact that I may have been right. (laughs) So... Congress has a, a very low public approval rating. It's it's had one for a while. It it that low approval rating certainly predated your arrival in Congress. But uh, do do you do you think Congress gets a bad rap from the public? No, I think that I think that, that we have low approval ratings for a reason. Um, I wish that the news would talk about more of the things we get done, the nuts and bolts of what we get done. For example, the local uh, newspaper in Syracuse published perhaps one quarter or one third of the actual bills I had passed. They wrote about them. I mean, they don't, the standard day-to-day meat and potato things we get done, Congressman Cackle passes another bipartisan bill today. That You don't hear about that stuff. But you hear about the fact that Congress Cackle jaywalked today, right? So you hear about the, con, con, you hear about the, con, con, uh, the so-called uh, controversial things or things that might stir the pot. So I think that... Um, uh, the ratings are deserved because, in my opinion, because of what we talked about earlier, and that is people are too concerned about uh, keeping their jobs instead of doing what's right. 
And if they did what was right more often, there would be more bipartisanship. And there's more bipartisanship. I think the country would have a better view of us. Is all they see on TV is uh, people going off on their colleagues or people saying nasty things. And the former president in that regard uh, was a, uh, particularly particularly bad at it. And um, uh, this era of constant vitriol, and you know, think about it, when, you're, when you come home at the end of the day and you're working your tail off and you're, you're making that, barely making ends meet, you turn on the TV and you have a beer and you, you try to relax and you see a bunch of knuckleheads in Congress screaming and yelling at each other, is that what you want to see? Nobody wants to see that. And so for that reason, I think we deserve the rating we get. And unless and until we understand that the other side's not always wrong, I think we're going to continue to get those ratings. Do you think, though, you mentioned the media and the coverage. Do, do you think that the media has been incentivizing your colleagues to go more to the extreme because they know that that's what will make it onto the nightly news? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, when we were growing up as kids, you and I, Grant, I sound like an old man when I say that. But uh, we <laughs> You're had, younger than me. You're younger. Yeah, we had CBS, <laughs> we had ABC, we had NBC, and we had public television, right? And the worst thing you could call anyone in the news was biased. The worst thing. And like they, there was such an integrity factor with respect to the news that everyone tried to abide by it. And just give them the news, don't give me your opinion. And now with the advent of 24-hour news cycles and online news, if you're a far-right nut or far-left nut or in the middle, you can go to your, your place and get only your point of view and never have to worry about getting an alternative point of view. And I'm not going to name the outlets, but we all know what they are, right? And so this incentivizes them because the people that uh, fuel the fire for their electoral uh, efforts year, year in and year out uh, often watch those segmented news outlets and then post things accordingly. So if you get on there and raise holy hell and you say what they want you to say, um, you're, you know, you're golden. If you don't, you're going to get a primary. God knows we don't want a primary because we don't want to have a challenge. We want to want this job for life. And that's the nature of the business today. So absolutely, the media has uh, some complicitness in this, for sure. And if you were going to try to reform the institution to try to help the kinds of problems that you're identifying, are there any particular structural changes in Congress that you'd like to see made or maybe a change in its traditional ways of working, you know, some of its habits and traditions that, that would be doable, that, that, that we could actually think could be achieved. Uh, yeah, I think term limits would have a huge impact because hmm. uh, if you had term limits, let's just say, for example, you can serve uh, six terms in the House and you're done 12 years or two terms in the Senate and then you're done. And you, uh, you will take those tougher votes because you're not worried about getting reelected as much. And, uh, you know, and so you may not be so jaundiced by the process. And so many people don't even realize what they're doing. But I can tell you, during around the time of talking about the election certification, a lot of my colleagues came up to me and said, uh, they'd make sure no one else was listening. And they'd say, you know, John, I got to tell you, um, we should just certify the election. It's our job is a simple ministerial job to put a stamp on whatever the state send us. But I don't want to have hassles back home or I don't want to have a primary. So I'm going to vote the other way. But I think what you're doing is right. I think a lot less of that would happen because they wouldn't be worried about getting reelected all the time. So more people would have the courage to do the right thing. And I think that would be a huge difference uh, in things. And I think that's probably one of the biggest um, things we could do. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher, and my guest is Congressman John Katko. He represents the 24th District of New York. I, I wanted to get your thoughts about 
an idea that that I and some others in political science have had about one way that might help. And I don't know whether you think it would matter or not, but right now the way it works is, and I was on the planes to DC and would often bump into you because you were traveling so frequently. But right now, you know, the expectation is you're gonna be home every single weekend for a long weekend, almost no exception. If there were a different norm where members of Congress weren't expected to be running back to their district all the time, actually could spend more time in Washington talking to each other, do you think that would help or would they just be at each other's throats for longer periods of time? I think basic human nature would say it probably would help. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I got more done in the congressional gym in the mornings. By the way, we all pay dues, we pay for it, so it's not government gift. Don't worry. <laughs> but I got more done talking to guys in the showers about bills or talking about what's working out than I ever did anywhere else. So basic human nature would say, yeah. Uh, back in the day, you hear all these stories about people and their families would live next to each other and the Democrats and Republicans, and they, they did a lot more things together. We don't do enough of that here. Um, anything you could do to try and do that, I think would be good. And there's been a lot of reforms that have been suggested in that regard that uh, that probably have merit. Mm, okay. And I wanted to get your thoughts now, bigger picture. Um, what are your biggest concerns for this country going forward? The divisiveness, um, the uh, win at all costs, the willing, the willingness to commit the the the, the, uh, the sin of the eleventh commandment of Ronald Reagan about trashing your your fellow colleagues in your own party. Uh, people tried to remove me from being head of the Homeland Security Committee in Congress, Republicans did, because I um, had the audacity to support the infrastructure bill. (laughs) So that stuff has got to stop. And I think people have just got to have an understanding. And that's a common theme I've been saying throughout everything that, um, you know, Ronald Reagan always said, I'll take what I can get now and keep working on the rest. We've got to get back to that. We are Mm. so far away from that right now. And the scorched earth being led around by the nose by uh, pundits on TV who are from the far left to the far right uh, disagree with the bill. So basically sick the political dogs on you to trash you because of that, that, that we've got to fight back against that. And I, I, I keep thinking about how to do that best. And I think the best way to do that is to get somebody in the white house who is actually willing to demonstrate to the American public. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat, if you want to come to the white house and talk about things, move the ball forward. I'll do it. And um, if you look back on Ronald Reagan's time with Tip O'Neill, it's remarkable some of the things they did. You know, tax reform, tax cuts, social security reform. Or could you imagine that nowadays? Mm. Immigration reform, right? And then it got to the point in, the, in 86, I believe it was, when Reagan realized he had to raise taxes for the good of the country. And he did that. No one remembers that. No one remembers that Ronald Reagan was uh, calling for basically the, the functional equivalent of open borders or compassion with the borders. So. There's got to be a lot of getting someone back to the point where um, they they demonstrate not just by their talk, but by their walk uh, in the White House that they're going to be bipartisan. And I think that would be that would have a sea change in the political tenor in Washington, because you need to be part of the train or you'd be on the outside looking in. Yeah, I wonder about that, no. though, and I want to get you to reflect on the point you're just making a bit more, because when we thought about together here the ways in which this problem is baked in, it's baked into the media, it's baked into the electoral incentives, it's baked into the primary process, it's baked into even 
you know, whether or not you're going to be on this committee or that committee. I just, I'm, give me some optimism that the right political leader at the top could be the driver that really changes the dynamic. I think America is so sick of it now. Uh, I think this election was reflective of that because it was nowhere near what people thought. As much as they are disappointed with uh, the president, they, they, they sent mixed messages and, uh, all across country. And I think they really are ready for a, a uniter in chief. And I, and, and I think that um, for all the reasons we discussed, it's time. And I, I really mm. do believe that um, the American people respond very positively in a general election. If you have one guy just lobbing grenades at the other guy the whole time, the other guy going, look, and I agree with what you said about this and this, but I don't disagree with you here, but that doesn't mean we can't sit down and talk and hash it out. So let's try and do that. Mm. American people heard that. They'd be like, oh my God, this is like my family. This is like how I deal with my personal life. This is great. This is, this, this is something good. And that, and that, that could infect, if that we could ever manage to have that person have the skills to infect all of Congress with that, uh, with that spirit. Um, of compromise, my God, we'd be much better off as a country. Well, I hope you're right. I want to. Uh, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> well, no, it's good. Uh, I'll take the optimism. I want to just, we just have about a minute and a half left, maybe less. I want to just do a little bit of a lightning round with you, if I could. So okay. just these are quick answers here. What is the actual physical place in Congress or in Washington that's your favorite place? The floor of the house. Okay. And how about your favorite restaurant? In Washington, D.C. Capitol Grill and Pennsylvania Avenue. Killer steak. <laughs> okay. And uh, last one. If you were to write a political memoir about your time in Congress, what would the title be? The Swamp Didn't Get Me. <laughs> That's a good note on which to end. That was Congressman Kako, John Kako. Uh, the congressman will further develop some of the thoughts that he has been sharing here in this conversation with me in a more formal farewell address, and we'll have a more formal conversation there. And that will be given on Monday, November 28th at 5 p.m. in the TAN Auditorium of the Nat National Veterans Resource Center on the Syracuse University campus. That event is free. It's open to the public, and there will be a reception following it. You can get more information on this event if you go to the Campbell Public Affairs Institute webpage, which is on the Maxwell School's webpage at Syracuse University. Uh, Congressman, let me just say in closing, I want to thank you for all the interviews that you have done with me over the years. Um, and I think that however one might view your policy positions and some of your votes, it's undeniable to me that you've approached your service in Congress with dignity and grace. And I think that will be missed. Well, I very much appreciate that. And uh, that was the goal from the beginning. And uh, like I said, I'm, uh, I'm very proud of that. And uh, I enjoyed all the interviews with you, too. I thought you were very fair and also very uh, thoroughly well prepared, unlike many. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate that as well. Well, thank you for that. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Livoner. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WRVO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wrvo.org slash Campbell Conversations.